Hello, and welcome to a special series of Podcast 360. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby. In this six-part series, we will be talking to Dr. Jeffrey Tabus, who is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, San Francisco's School of Medicine, an emergency medicine physician at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Emergency Department, the Director of Faculty Development for the Department of Emergency Medicine, and the Director of Outcomes and Innovations for the UCSF Office of Continuing Medical Education. He recently presented a session on atrial fibrillation at the American College of Emergency Physicians 2021 Scientific Assembly. In part three of this podcast series, he talks about anticoagulation and which patient populations should receive medical treatment. Let's listen in as he answers our questions. Another challenge you spoke about during your session was about anticoagulation therapy, specifically which patients qualify for treatment. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, I think it's important important to lay out that um, practicing physicians are not world experts. So whenever we implement any recommendations, it's important to recognize that they need to be systematic and simple. And the less systematic and the more complex they are, I think the more variability, the less recommendations are followed and the potential for worse care of the patient. So the way I like to approach problems like anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation, which is very complicated, is to try and boil it down. And I also give a case for this. And this was a um, uh, tennis partner of mine, about 50 years old, who uh, kept looking at his heart rate on his smartwatch and um, he'd been diagnosed with intermittent atrial fibrillation. He didn't have any risk factors that needed anticoagulation, but wanted to know about uh, getting his heart rate controlled. Well, it turned out that he was at work and through a massive clot and was rushed to the hospital and um, had thrombolysis for his clot and good recovery, but he was fortunate because he happened to get emergently to a stroke center. It was an unusual form of a clot. It hit the the posterior circulation, which doesn't give you the sort of the weakness of the arm or the facial droop. It just makes you unresponsive. But fortunately, it was a good center. They recognized this, they treated him and he had great recovery. But it made me want to really focus on who needs anticoagulation. And it's a very complicated issue that, um, (laughs) I mean, so if you think about it, um, one out of every three people in their lifetime will have atrial fibrillation. And by age 80, about a quarter of us will be in atrial fib. So, um, so it's, you know, coming to a, uh, it's, it's coming to a friend or, or yourself near, you know, all of, all of us are significant risk for this. I think about, uh, up to 5 million people in the US have atrial fibrillation. It puts you at high risk for stroke, like at least a five-fold higher lifetime risk of stroke than those without AFib. Um, and anticoagulation decreases that risk of stroke significantly. 
we also know that uh, about 40% of people who are at intermediate to high risk of uh, stroke are not anticoagulated. So we're not, so we have a ton of people who are at risk of stroke, 20 to 30% of strokes come from atrial fibrillation. Um, we can impact that. And there are a lot of people that we are not anticoagulating. So, um, so basically, uh, I think it's important to look at the role of the emergency department in this. Um, and there is some research that suggests that when emergency providers, we typically don't initiate, you know, long-term medications from the emergency department, but there is some indication that when people initiate anticoagulation in the ED to appropriate patients, compared with telling them to see their doctor as an outpatient and ask them about this, that there are higher rates of um, compliance and use of anticoagulation. So there's, there's, a, there's a suggestion that um, initiating it from the emergency department um, is beneficial. And this is analogous to treating um, patients who have uh, opioid dependence with um, medically assisted treatment for opioid dependence. They found that when they're seen in the emergency department and told to go to a clinic and start treatment like methadone or buprenorphine, um, they don't do as well as when that treatment is started in the ED, specifically buprenorphine. So, um, you know, it, it, it makes sense if you see, if you're in an emergency situation, the doctor says, I'm worried about you. Here's a prescription and that, that will help you. It probably, you know, jolts you into um, activity a little better, or at least a portion of patients, it jolts into activity a little better than saying, you know, go back into the medical system and, and start getting treatment for this. So that's one thought. The other thought is probably a lot of physicians don't anticoagulate because it's, it's a complicated assessment. There's something called the CHADS2 VASC score. Um, it's spelled CHA2DS2-VASC. So right away, that's complicated. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a simple mnemonic. And it's even more complicated because there's this sort of bizarre statistical phenomena where a woman just from being female gets one point and a male gets no points. And that's because when in higher risk patients, women have higher risk of stroke. So if you are old, and have heart failure, you're at a fairly high risk of stroke and you're at even higher risk of stroke as a woman. But you know what? That does not impact initiation of anticoagulation because those factors don't affect risk at the lower end. So they've added this very complicated calculation where Men get zero points without risk. Women get one point. And you are only supposed to anticoagulate if a man has one point or a woman has two points. Are you confused? Yes, you are. That's crazy. It's insane, really. I mean, it's insane for a practicing physician to have to use two different cutoff levels 
for two different values that don't have impact. So the way I approach this is, in the old days, we used to talk about lone AFib. And lone AFib was a patient who was younger than 65, who did not have high blood pressure, diabetes, or heart failure, and who did not have vascular disease. That means a previous stroke, MI, or peripheral vascular disease. And they definitely didn't have valvular disease. So patients with valvular disease are at the highest risk of stroke by far. Any patient with valvular disease or a valve replacement needs to be on anticoagulation if they're in atrial fibrillation. Uh, they're the highest risk of all. So if you were young, less than, I'm going to call young less than 65 as I approach the age of 65. Um, if you don't have comorbidities like high blood pressure, diabetes, or heart failure, and you don't have previous vascular or thromboembolic disease, you have lone AFib and you don't need to be anticoagulated, whether you're a man or a woman. And if you have any of those, there's pretty good evidence that you should be anticoagulated. The 2019 guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and Heart Association say definitely anticoagulate someone with two of those and consider anticoagulation in someone with one of those. However, the European Society of Cardiology, which was published in 2020, says it's, it's a fairly good recommendation to anticoagulate anyone with one of those. And I think that's the best. I mean, realize that if they just have one thing, if they just have hypertension and they're young and they have any significant concerns for bleeding, like they say play ice hockey or something, you may want to not anticoagulate them. They're borderline, but if they don't have concerns, they will benefit from anticoagulation. Basically, the only patients that shouldn't be considered for anticoagulations are the patients with lone AFib, the ones who have none of those. And people are not going to like that I'm calling it lone AFib because that's an old term that they got rid of. But I will tell you that is the best way for doctors to think about this. You have lone AFib, you don't need to be anticoagulated. Everyone else should probably be anticoagulated or at least have the discussion about the risks and benefits of anticoagulation. To do this from the emergency department, we know that patients have better compliance. You don't want to just initiate a prescription because you need to make sure you're initiating a prescription in someone who can get follow-up, that their insurance will cover the anticoagulant, that there's support from your system to then go evaluate the patient that you've considered their bleeding risks that you've had this discussion. But at least it pushes you to think about this more, to push your organization to develop an integrated approach. One of the things that the European Society guidelines really emphasize is an integrated approach to all patients with atrial fibrillation. They recommend all of them should have an echo of their heart. All of them should have assessment for anticoagulation and uh, need for stroke risk and bleeding risk. So I think that is great to bring back to your shop. Basically, you will consider carefully that patient who presents to you with atrial fibrillation, whether they need to be anticoagulated and at the very least strongly encourage them if they have any of these risk factors. Some of the things that both society guidelines say shouldn't be a consideration is 
the burden of atrial fibrillation, meaning if they have it intermittently or persistently, that they're still at risk. I mean, there is an increased risk the more atrial fibrillation you have, but the risk is significant enough that if you pop in and out of atrial fibrillation, even occasionally, you're at risk for stroke. Less, not take that into account as much. Maybe if you're right on the borderline of deciding and you have rare atrial fibrillation, you might wait. But they've also commented that in the first four months of patients who are low risk, they often convert to higher risk. So they often, if you reassess them at six months, they then are now either older or they have hypertension, you know, older past the cutoff where they have high blood pressure now, or they have, you know, they converted from pre-diabetes to diabetes, or, you know, there's something that has changed that now puts them in a risk category. So, so again, um, uh, this is a very preventable disease. Stroke is a very preventable disease and we need to get better at recognizing the high-risk patients and anticoagulating them and decreasing their risk. Wow. I, I think that was so helpful. Um, oh, I, it, it blows my mind that, um, you know, the, the um, percentage of people with AFib or high risk for AFib is so high and yet the prescriptions are so low. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. And I, I'll tell you, I don't know if that's more mind-boggling or the fact that the calculation for this is so complicated. Mm -hmm. I think it's more mind-boggling that the fact that it's so complicated. And I bet that explains at least a third of patients who don't get prescriptions. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not going to do that research, but I can just tell you from experience in medicine for the past 30 years, that's the case. I, I, I know it's the case. Yeah. Well, especially if you think about it, you know, who, who sees the patients more often, the primary care provider, you know? Yes, yes, um, yes. It's not the AFib specialist. Thing. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, you're right. Exactly. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. And for our listeners, stay tuned for the subsequent parts of the series.